A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the king brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. A reading from the book of the prophet Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 18. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O, o Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, Mary's Magnificent, Luke 1, 4, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. These are the words of our Lord. So just uh, to, I want to mention a few things uh, about the scripture readings each week. Uh, this is, uh, of course, the third Sunday in um, Advent. And uh, I believe it's pronounced uh, Gaudete, Gaudete Sunday. And Gaudete comes from the uh, Latin for rejoice. So uh, if you could put Philippians 4, 4 back up there. Um, This is a traditional scripture reading for the third Sunday in Advent. And the, the Gaudete Sunday uh, is associated with rejoicing. And in most Christian traditions, they light the rose-colored candle. Therefore, I, and uh, they actually wear rose vestments. That's why I wore a rose shirt and a purplish tie with a little bit of rose in it. My wildest, boldest tie. Because it's a festive uh, occasion. And um, if you were in a liturgical tradition where they wear robes and so forth, uh, they would actually wear uh, rose-colored robes twice a year, once during uh, Lent and once during Advent, and this would be the Sunday that they would wear the rose-colored robes. So if anyone is wearing a rose cut, this is the Sunday that real men do wear rose-colored shirts. <laughs> so, uh, in Paul's epistle, Rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I say rejoice. The Latin of that is where we get godete. Uh, godete is the Latin word for rejoice. rejoice. And the phrase is godete indominino semper iterum dico godete. Now, godete means rejoice. Indomino is the Lord. Semper, many of you... Uh, we don't have any Marines in our church, though, but you know that Semper, uh, Semper Fi is always faithful. But it's a stronger word uh, than just faithful. Um, 
It's really like all, always covenantally reliable or loyal. Um, there's uh, some of you know the word semper from. Uh, I'll, I'll wait till John Gray grabs him. David's not liking this message. Uh, yeah, he didn't like the Latin, right? Okay. Babies do speak in tongues, I think, but uh, no. Um, a lot of you know the phrase Ecclesia Semper Reform, Reformanda Est, which means the church is always being reformed. Uh, I prefer the Ecclesiasta Reformata Semper Reformandas, which means uh, the church is reformed and always needs to be reformed. And that's really uh, what we're dealing with in these, uh, these messages. So anyway, I thought I'd at least comment on that reading. And the other one I wanted to comment on was uh, Mary's Magnificat. It's a uh, very traditional for the third Sunday of, of Advent as well. Um, there's one other one that we didn't get to from the Gospel of Luke, so you can write it down if you want. It's, or it's in your bulletin, right? Did, did they get it in the bulletin? Luke 3, 10 through 18? Did that get in the bulletin? It is? Okay. So uh, that you could put some thought into because we won't go over that. Um, Mary's Magnificat has always been um, viewed by, by the church as kind of a social justice passage. And uh, too much of the church too often has had too little concern for social justice issues. Uh, of course, issues like abortion in our time, issues like human trafficking, issues like economic injustice, uh, issues historically like slavery, and of course human... You know, although through Christian anti-slavery movements... Um, we have succeeded in, in uh, getting the world to a place where technically uh, slavery is illegal in every country in the world. However, um, we have more human slavery today than we've ever had. Think about that. Because, of course, you can't pass laws to change the heart of man. So human trafficking is very much an issue. In Mary's uh, prophecy, uh, and often called Mary's song, what, what she basically is rejoicing in is, is the fact that eternally and eventually all things will be made right. So it's kind of a post-millennial vision, if you will, if you know anything about eschatology and the various positions. It's kind of a post-millennial vi vision of society that, uh, you know, the very fact that, that we consider uh, all men and women equal before the law and so forth, uh, if you've never read a guy named D D Dinesh D'Souza, uh, he, he would be a guy worth reading as he kind of shows that Christianity has been the, the cause of human rights advancements uh, throughout the world. And when, the, when, our, when our modern cultures try to... Uh, be in favor of human rights and so forth, with, but divorce it from its Christian heritage, what they do is, is cut it adrift from any reason for it. 
There's really no reason for morality apart from Christ. And so I'd encourage you to think that one through somewhat. Um, I've been reading a devotional that Emily Furlow got me started with called The Greatest Gift, Unwrapping the Full Love Story of Christmas by Ann Voskamp. And today's uh, devotion was uh, called Adore Him was particularly good. And at the end of it, she quoted a little poem from a, from a Christian writer and a missionary named, that's long since passed away named Amy Carmichael. And just, did, how many people know who Amy Carmichael was? A lot of people. Okay. Fair, fairly good number of people. And of course, uh, she was a missionary to Bangalore, India. And ran a home to, to free girls from human trafficking. And, um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you're in a city like that. You're literally dealing with tens of thousands of cases of people being trafficked. And these Christian homes uh, usually would liberate, uh, oh, 140 or 150 girls max. But... It always makes me think of, uh, there's, there's a famous story about a painter who was, uh, had set up his easel on, on the beach to, and looking out over the ocean was going to uh, paint an oceanscape with a sunset and so forth. And um, he looked way down the beach and he saw uh, what looked like a person going to the water and the going like 50 feet from the water, and then going back to the water, and then going like 50 feet from the water, and then going back to the water. And so he wondered, what is this person doing? And so he decided to walk all the way down there, even though the, uh, he was far enough away that the person looked like a little small person. And when he got down, he uh, found it was a grown boy of about 12 or whatever. And uh, he was going and picking up uh, starfish, and he was uh, walking to the edge of the ocean and throwing the starfish as far as he could back into the water because when the tide comes in, the starfish wash up on the beach, and then when the tide goes back out, often they're left on the beach, and by the time the next tide comes in, they've dried up and died. And uh, so the, the painter said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm saving starfish. And the painter said, what, you're ridiculous, kid. Like, this is a total futile endeavor. You, you can't possibly make a difference for all these starfish. And the kid uh, looked at the guy, and he took a starfish, and he threw it as far as he could into the ocean. He said, I just made a difference for that one. And uh, so uh, sometimes, uh, as we talk today, we're going to talk about the... Uh, the, the ministries of the church, um, not just our church, but the church biblically, keep in mind that, uh, you know, uh, you know I, I would never be worthy to consider myself uh, even, uh, I don't know if I'm worthy to talk about Amy Carmichael, let alone uh, talk about it to you guys, but, uh, you know, I, I love reading uh, uh, accounts of people like Amy Carmichael, which I spent a little time reading her Wikipedia article this morning when I, after I read the Magnificat, because I thought, what a good example of, of what that's all about. She was. 
All right, well, uh, I like to make sure we always uh, talk a little bit about the Scripture readings, even though that puts me further behind. But uh, I, I, Gaudete uh, Sunday is uh, many people's favorite one because, you know, there's four different themes for, this, for the four Sundays. And the theme of the third Sunday is all about uh, rejoicing with anticipation about the coming of Christ I always get very emotional in December in the evenings when after it gets dark because I, love, I like to think about, you know, the world in darkness lie, you know, in that uh, the incarnation uh, in some ways is the greatest event in the history of the universe because uh, it was the breaking in, the beginning of light. And as Proverbs says, uh like the rising of the sun, uh, which shines brighter and brighter till the fullness of day, um, is you know the life of the righteous. And the truth of the matter is, is light has come, and light is here, and light is growing. And despite all the popular negative eschatologies of our day, the truth of the matter is, is that all things are being made right. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and, and uh, there will be no more crying, neither sighing. And, uh, you know, someday there won't be people dying of cancer. And now, how much uh, light God is bringing before the second coming of Christ is, is a matter of eschatological debate. But I think if you read the scriptures rightly, uh, there's a lot more things to be made right yet. Um, and, uh, you know, so many people think it's getting darker and darker, and that's a perspective, but it, it's not a perspective that lines itself up with actual understanding of history. You know, if you think about it, when, when Jesus appeared to the two disciples in Luke 24, they were walking to a city called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so um, it was about a two to three hour walk. And uh, they were walking as it was getting late in the day. And in those days, it was uh, very dangerous to, to be on the roads after it got dark. So you tried to get to a city where you could uh, have an inn or wherever to stay at by the time it got dark. And in that first, uh, you know, that was probably the third or fourth in, uh, encounter of the resurrected Christ with some of his disciples that day. And at that time, think about it, there was approximately 120 disciples, all of whom were confused, discouraged, and scared. The very next Easter, there were over 5,000 disciples that were challenging the, the, the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin and the political leaders in Jerusalem and beginning to expand beyond Jerusalem to the regions of Judea around Jerusalem. By the time the New Testament closes, there are uh, disciples 
in every significant city in the entire Roman Empire. And the, the New Testament actually talks about the gospel that has gone into all the world. I'm sure Anvesh could tell you a little bit about uh, near where Bangalore is, actually, not far from Bangalore. There's uh, what they call the Thomas Christians, uh, because, you know, we like to think of Thomas as uh, doubting Thomas. But that Thomas made it as far as India in his lifetime planting churches. And so when the, the New Testament actually uses the phrase, the gospel, which has past tense, gone into all the world because the Bible, uh, a percentage represents the whole and there was enough of the world evangelized within the life of the disciples that uh, there were churches in what's today Sweden, Norway, Finland, France, England, uh, all throughout Northern Africa and all throughout uh, the, the East as far as, as far as India. Now, in the 14th and 15th century, most Eastern Christianity was wiped out, which is a, a part of God's sovereign plan because most Eastern Christians were what's called Nestorians, which is a quasi-cult. And God intended in the long run that a more orthodox version of Christianity would, con would conquer the East. And Christianity is exploding in most uh, places in the Far East today. Not all places, though. There's very little progress of the gospel in Japan, a little bit more in Korea, but a lot more in Southeast Asia, a lot more in Communist China, a lot in Malaysia and India and Indonesia and so forth. So anyway, let's get into today's message. Uh, so this is kind of a bold topic, I guess. I'm, uh, I'm talking about introduction to understanding the New Testament. So... Uh, if you are, are a, um, a millennial person and you're uh, at all educated in our time period, you're probably aware of a, of a word that's uh, become popular since the 1990s called meta-narratives. And the idea is that um, many books, many subjects have a, an overarching narrative among the narratives. And part of the idea is that you bring a meta-narrative to, to, to every book you read, to everything you study. You bring certain life experiences, certain knowledge, certain worldview, and so forth. And whether you know it or not, if you're an English-speaking person, even if you've never been to church and have no background in Christianity, you are bringing a set of assumptions to reading the Bible with you, that in most cases people are not conscious of what their assumptions are. In other words, you're holding these assumptions and they're determining what you get out of your Bible reading and you think you're reading it in a neutral, objective way when in fact your, uh, the, your paradigms of interpretation are totally controlling what you see and don't see. And that's true of every literature you read, but especially of the Bible. And so what the, the point of this series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity is, is trying to say is that in the, in the 1800s, um, 
really starting with the Reformation, uh, certain paradigms of interpreting Scripture began to emerge in the church. And those paradigms, as they unfold, eventually became what was known as the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy. And as a whole, what I'm uh, asserting in this series is that modernists very much interpreted the scriptures the way the Sadducees saw them in the time of Jesus, whereas uh, fundamentalist evangelicals interpreted them very much the way the Pharisees interpreted the scriptures. And neither group liked Jesus. Nor did either group have much insight into who Jesus was and what his mission was. And what I'm asserting is that our, our paradigms of interpreting the Bible, we think we know a lot more about the Bible than we actually do. And whether or not you've gone to church much, you've been exposed to one or both of those two major paradigms of looking at Scripture, and, they, and you're bringing them to the table with you when you read the Bible. And so what I want to start on today is, uh, of course, in our series, that you're not putting the thing up in, anymore? Oh, you're supposed to do that as soon as I get up here. Um, Every week. So he's supposed to put up a, a little uh, slide. You don't have it? or Oh. Well, actually, this week I put the 15 of them at the end of your teaching. So this week we can probably do without of it. So we're, if you look at the end of the teaching, Roman number four, we're looking at 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery, which what we're saying is that step one is to admit we don't see the subjects as clearly as we think we do. If you can just get to that point, the, the average person who comes to Grace Christian Fellowship, it takes usually about two years before they begin to, to say, oh, I really don't know as much as I thought I did on any kind of significant level. Seriously, I mean, we've been doing this, I've been doing this 45 years now. So, uh, generally speaking, part of the more conservative way of looking at the scriptures, the evangelical way, has a big uh, spirit of, I know it all already because I grew up in Sunday school. And in fact, the whole Sunday school movement was a turn in the wrong direction uh, in many ways that blinded people from understanding the scripture. Because when the Sunday School movement started as part of the evangelical emergence in the 1870s and so forth, there were two choices of which way to go. One of the things the Sunday School movement was trying to address was it was trying to address the fact that we had fallen into a, an attitude of let the professional pastors do all the ministry. So even today, the average person thinks the way I do evangelism is I invite my friend Bob to church, and I hope the professional people get him saved. Right? That's how we, that's how we, rather than equipping each person to know how to make disciples. In a thorough process where a person uh, understands the Christian faith from beginning to end, start to finish, backward, forward, inside out, and they're 
in every which way understands not only the scriptures, but the mind and heart of God and what his purposes are in the earth. The very fact that most Christians are shooting for the wrong goals says a lot about where the church is at today. So part of what the Sunday School Movement was trying to address was that there was this professional mentality, so the only people that do ministry are the people who've gone to a, a place called Bible Cemetery, I'm a seminary, uh, and they've had their faith undermined in certain ways. Nathan posted an interesting article about that on his Facebook this week, if you want to read it. It's a long article, but worth the read. Um, and so, uh, what instead of qualifying people for, for the ministry the way they did in the Bible, which is, in the Bible, you sp spent time with an older Christian who systematically discipled you over a number of years in every aspect of the Christian faith, and it was a one-on-one -on -one small process, uh, instead of uh, taking people and sending them away to school in divorcing them from the everyday life of the church, you kept them in the life of the church, and you gave them jobs like that's why we have six or so young brothers who teach at 930, because they're uh, growing into more ministry that way gradually. And I'm you know, working with them behind the scenes to critique what they're saying and doing and helping, helping develop more ministry to be released into more places. Right? So that, that was always the way ministry was raised up in the Bible. Now we do it a completely different way as if we've improved on God. And I'm not saying that education isn't really important of the ministry. No church emphasizes biblical studies and so forth as much as we do. So that's a very important part of it. But as the Sunday school movement emerged, what, what ended up happening was in order to address this division between clergy and laity, they said, we've got to get the laity to teach the Sunday schools, people who don't have seminary degrees. But there's two ways you can go about that. You can either raise the bar for how much equipping the people who are teaching the Sunday schools are receiving within the church, or you can dumb down the message. And what's happened for 150 years now is we've systematically dumbed down the message more and more and more and more. And the results have been disastrous. So that's just, that's just one example of hundreds of things that we say we're the most Bible-believing Christians in history when we're the, the least Bible-practicing Christians in the history of the church. That's just one small example of it. We need to equip people who lead home groups, people who lead small group Bible studies, people who lead Sunday school classes. We need to make sure they're equipped much more, which is why we have lists of foundational articles, foundational books, intermediate books, um, uh, some, a few of these guys haven't been approached yet, but something Nathan's going to be heading up for us is, uh, and Jeff Burks is going to be asked to be involved in this and a number of other guys, is uh, to have a little committee 
of guys that are like uh, adding to, subtracting from, expanding all of our recommended materials and making sure that everybody knows about them. One of the things we discovered recently is that a, a large majority of people in our church haven't even read our 12 foundational books that you're supposed to re read the first year you've been here. And some of those people have been here two and three and four years and haven't read all 12 of the easy-to-read books that we chose to get you started on a foundation. And so if you're sitting there and you've been coming to Grace Christian Fellowship more than 12 or 13 months and you haven't read all the foundational books... Something we, we miscommunicated somehow. Which obviously we're you know, we're talking in our leadership meetings right now. How do we how do we address that? And we're we're gonna do some very uh deliberate things to address that and to help help you uh work through in some systematic way all of the foundational books. because um, uh the intermediate books are much more fun. Uh, and much more insightful, but you have to at least have uh, certain things in your foundation. And the foundational books were not only chosen for their importance, but they were chosen for their easiness of reading. And you can easily read one of those, oh, in 8 or 12 or 14 hours, even if you're a very slow reader. So, all right. Well, let's get started with the message. <laughs> So what we've been doing is emphasis three of the 15 on the back. We've already, we did emphasis one, emphasis two. So this is the third week on emphasis three. And in the first two weeks on, uh, if you look at uh, Roman number 1a, we, we talked about how the Reformation, which uh, Catherine uh, talked a lot about, one of the forerunners of the Reformation today, William Tyndale, was uh, often called, a lot of people refer to it as the triumph of Paul's doctrines of salvation over Paul's doctrines of the church. Now that needs some thought, because that really is an accurate statement. What has happened systematically since the Reformation is uh, more and more of the average Christians sitting in the pew understand some degree of things like conviction of sin, repentance, the atonement of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith and grace alone, and so forth. Yet very few of the people are putting that into a context of understanding what God's purpose for the church is. And if you uh, doubt that, write this down and study this out this week. Read Ephesians chapter 2. The 1 through 22, the whole chapter, and I bet you will find that you have heard many sermons that come from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 11, which have to do with the, sal 1 through 10, which have to do with the salvation, uh, the conversion, the coming to Christ of the, of the individual, but it's put in a context of that makes you part of a covenant people, a family, a nation in verses 11 through 22. And the whole thing is one paragraph. When they made the chapters eight centuries later or so, they actually got that one pretty right. A lot of times they put the chapters in the wrong places right in the middle of a thought. But in, in Ephesians 2, they're in a pretty good place. 
Pretty good choice of where to put the start and end of the chapter in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 22 is to be understood as one thought, and nobody ever speaks about Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 today. Never. Which has to do about the nation of God, the family of God, the temple of God, the household of God. He uses about eight different metaphors for the church in, that, in those 12 verses. And he's, the whole point is that if you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and if you've been made alive in Christ in, uh, and have been saved by faith working through grace, or grace working through faith, you've been saved into a family, and that family has lots of responsibilities and obligations and covenant parameters. And so if you weren't saved into some kind of commitment of, of people, you got a very modernized, radically individualistic, non-biblical salvation for free. <laughs> you got a defective product, and you didn't pay any extra for it. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think you'd... You'd be all, you know, if I said I wanted to give you four new radial tires that are rated for 40,000 miles, or I could give you the four tires that uh, are bald that I just took off my wife's car and put new tires on for the winter. You could have the old bald ones, and uh, they're the same price. And what we've done is basically said, well, we'll, we'll make the, the old bald ones a little less and and, and that's all we'll offer. We won't even tell people there's good tires available. That's what we're doing with the church today. So, today's evangelical movement has a limited ecclesiology, and ecclesiology is just the study of the church. Uh, we've talked a lot about radical individualism. I want to talk about another idea that plays into that called consumerism. In the 1970s, there was a big movement that, in my mind, was a continuation of a movement that started in the 1870s and had significant leaps forward in the 1890s, uh, shortly after World War I in the 1920s, shortly after World War II in the 1940s, uh, and then again in the 1970s. Each of those, those time periods the church, in order to compete for more members in, in an increasingly divided, many, 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 many choices situation, tried to compete for members by lowering the cost of what Jesus taught, trying to avoid the, the tough parts, trying, trying to avoid the crosses, trying to avoid repentance, trying to avoid conviction of sin, trying to avoid this sticky thing called you have to make him Lord of all or he's not Lord of all, at all. Think, if you think that through logically, if Jesus isn't Lord of everything, then he's Lord of nothing. Because then you're, what we seriously teach in the mega churches today, we offer various programs and we say, you choose how much of Jesus you want. That's what we do. And every, every person uh, takes the amount of God that they're comfortable with. 
that doesn't involve thorns, difficulties, tough relationships, commitments, study, painstaking turmoil, study. You know, the word uh, for disciple, one of the words is agony, which we get the word agony from. To be a disciple means to, to, to study to it till it hurts. People always uh, laugh when I tell them when I was in college in order to do what was God was calling me for the ministry and, and also graduate with honors and all that and be a leader in a church and stuff. Uh, many nights I had to study on my knees. And I had to study on my knees so the pain in my knees would keep me from falling asleep. But you'd have to do whatever it takes to get the job done is the bottom line. All right. Now, the consumerism thing really came to a whole new level in the 1970s in a, because there was a movement called the church growth movement. And the church growth movement was how to have bigger churches. And instead of having a church where at one time it was commonly accepted that most churches would have 70 80 to 80% of the people be committed Christians while you're working on converting the 20 or 30% of the people who attend your church that aren't that serious with the Lord, which is what we do here at Grace Christian Fellowship. And now the model has become you have 20 or 30% of the people who attend the church be serious Christians, and you treat the other 70 or 80% as your mission field that you hope to convince to be more serious Christians down the road. Now that's a big change. And so one of the ways we attracted members is it was called the, the felt needs movement. So we attract members by having programs for what you feel are your needs. Because simply this, if we're, if we're not discipling a husband and wife, then they inevitably are going to be doing less of a good job of raising their kids and equipping their kids in the faith than they, than they should. And they're going to know that very deeply. They're going to know I'm failing with my kids. And so the, the way we address that, instead of doing what Jesus taught us to do, is have them take a good father and, and good marriage like John and Leah Gray and say, let them help you have a better marriage and have better child-raising skills and, and the work, work together on this problem. Uh, we just have seminars about how to raise kids. And therefore, if the people who want to pay the price can come to the seminars. The problem with that is that people would have to accurately perceive all the time on their own where they're lacking. How many of you can analyze where your strengths and weaknesses are in, 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 your, in managing finances, in your vocational career, in your Bible reading, uh, in your social relations, and you're really good at, at knowing exactly how good you're at doing in all those areas all the time. Anybody? If we do a felt needs approach, that puts, no one's helping you 
even analyze where you need to grow. And so what people do is they choose, oh, I'm, there's a subtle idea in America because of Henry Ford and the radical success of, of the Industrial Revolution that bigger must be better. If there's 2,000 people going here, they must, they, this must be a more insightful church. That is the stupidest thing in the history of the world. That is a very prevalent idea. Most people assume because it's bigger, has a nicer building and a better budget. And if you, any mega church will always have a very uh, talented, charismatic speaker who can speak a lot more polished than me and doesn't tick you off like I do. <laughs> that, that was a well-timed amen. I finally got an amen. <laughs> That, that was very well timed. Half of humor is, is the uh, delivery. Good time. Um, so the consumer mentality is, has uh, taken the church over the last 30, 40 years to all new lows in everything. Our divorce rate's way up. Our number of kids that are staying with the faith that we raise in the faith is way down. Is that what you want? How many of your children is it acceptable to sacrifice to the God of the humanistic public education state that won't end up walking with Christ when they grow up? Because you didn't go to a church that equipped you enough to know how to lead your kids to Christ. Right? But that's what we're doing. I should probably tell you how I really feel. So, biblically, at a minimum, a church should be a missional, listen to these words carefully, discipling community. Missional, discipling community. Now, there are two particular organizations, one named Gallup. You've heard of Gallup polls because they're very involved in political polls. And the other named Barna. And they study uh, trends in the church. And Barna releases a report every year on trends in the church. And all indications are, listen to this carefully, America's Christianity is about a generation behind Europe and following Europe in the trends of its Christianity. Europe was once called Christendom. Almost all European countries have between 2% to 4% of their population who claim to be Christian today. Generally, when you uh, just let people define if they're Christian or not, about half of them get it right. So that means that in most countries in Europe, 1% to 2% of the population are Christian, like you have in Japan. And in fact, Europe is now one of the least Christianized uh, places in the whole world. 
take uh, something like Anglicanism. As you know, uh, the Reformed tradition influences our church a lot, and uh, uh, among the Reformed traditions, that includes people like Lutherans, Anglicans, uh, what they call Reformed, Dutch Reformed, and Presbyterians, and so forth. And so, you know, like when I do the scripture readings every week, I consult a Catholic, an Anglican, and a Reformed, and an Evangelical uh, list of what the scripture readings are. And then I choose from them. When I wrote the vows that we use in our weddings, I used all those traditions' vows and melded them together into one more comprehensive package of vows. So, I, you know, there's no, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church, and there's much wisdom in, in, the, in the history of the church if we are willing to dig it out. That's why we're having Catherine do this series. Thank you, Catherine. Um, but at one time, Europe was called Christendom. Europe stopped being missional and stopped being discipling and basically did all the things we're talking about in this series. They started having only professional ministers rather than like what Wycliffe tried to do with this, you know, discipling and sending out the Lollards. That, that was hated in his day. Except by Wycliffe and the Lollards. <laughs> the people actually liked the Lollards. Um, so Europe today is one of the darkest spiritual places in the world. The gospel is making much more headway in India, which has historically been one of the darkest nations. If you know anything about Islam and Hinduism, they're two of the most deceived, lost uh, faith that destroys families, lives, and cultures. India has been historically poor because India was historically Hindu, and Hinduism produces mass poverty. Every religion has economic consequences. And Hinduism's caste system has kept millions and millions of people starving for, for three, four thousand years. So, are we going to go the same direction as Europe? John 15, 8, Jesus said this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Is a top criteria in where you go to church, who's going to equip you to bear the quality of fruit that Jesus bore? We want to make church about buildings, liturgies, um, professional ministers getting the incense or the vestments right or whatever. Church is about equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry to the point where they actually become effective at it. And that, I don't care if they stand there in their head and wear, you know, the ugliest black-colored robes or whatever you want uh, I, you know, if they, if they bear good fruit and if they can teach me how to do that on a regular basis, that's where you belong.
You know, John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, let's look at that word remain. One of the things that, um, that I focused on from the 70s on was how to lead people through a model we use called the first five steps of entering Christ's kingdom. Have they really been fully converted instead of just gone forward at an altar call and prayed a sinner's prayer? Have they become a disciple of Jesus? And all that involves, has there been a heart change where deep down they are, they are fanatically uh, thirsty to love God, know God, please God, and be like God? That's what a conversion is. That means they want to be like Jesus, and that's become the most important goal in their life. There's no other goals like vocational goals, marriage goals, uh, financial goals, or anything else that's competing with the goal of loving and knowing and being like Jesus. And every other kind of goal has become subordinate in reality in our hearts to knowing Jesus. That's what a true conversion is. How many people actually start there these days? Normally it takes a few years for us to get someone to that starting point. Especially if they're coming out of some background in Christianity. But that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men in Mark, uh, or Matthew 4.19, re reading the reverse negative, that means if you're not fishing for men, then you're not following Jesus. Do you know that high percentages of so-called Bible-believing Christians have never even shared the gospel with anyone, let alone discipled anyone. I don't want a show of hands on this one. I don't. But think, like, have you ever really given a full gospel presentation, done a gospel-oriented Bible study uh, with someone? I don't think you can do that in a, in a, a matter of a, just a few weeks. I think that would take a few months. We have people who can't even get to church every Sunday because they, they can't even get up. I'm serious. That's, that's the kind of problem that should be solved at the door. In other words, that's one of the first signs that you're really converted, that the Lord's day is something you wouldn't miss. And you're going to take whatever steps it takes, you know, you know, I remember working, we, we worked with a lot of uh, less than motivated people over the years and people who like lose their jobs because they can't get there in time. And I tell them a little trick, like get two alarm clocks. The first one, I don't even care if it's a little bit pleasant. I actually have this alarm clock that I love. That it, the first time it goes off, it, it beeps so slowly and, it, and so quietly. It's beep, beep. And you're kind of like half asleep going, what is that sound? And then it, and it's, then it starts raising in volume gradually. <laughs> and, uh, 
And eventually you have, you go, I reach over and hit the snooze bar only to know that nine minutes later, it's going to go off obnoxiously. <laughs> get an alarm clock like that. <laughs> and then get one that's on the other side of the room that's so obnoxious that it scares you half to death. And that you have to jump out of bed to go turn it off or you're going to be rude to your wife or anyone else that's in the neighborhood. Your neighbors are going to start calling the complaint. <laughs> And then just make a covenant with yourself that if you get, if the alarms go so far as to, as to, you know, you've got to get out of bed to turn that one off, whether you get it there before it goes nuts or not. And that once you do that, you're never going to lay back down ever. And you'll stop being late for work and church. It's amazing that we're supposed to be the radical church, but we can't get a very significant percentage here at 930. We get pretty good, pretty good. For a lukewarm church. And, uh, and more than half the people who come at 930 are late. But you know what? I watched Catherine Friday and Saturday spend hours and hours and hours putting that presentation together. Could we respect the people God sends us enough to get up in time to hear them? We don't think like that in America. But really, that's the truth of it. You know, so, find, you know, I always say find a diet that's going to work for you. Find a way of, let, you know, exercise. Don't, don't get someone else's exercise program. Get one you're going to stay with. Don't get someone else's views on nutrition. Get one you're going to stay with. Same thing with just spiritual disciplines. Get something that's going to work. I have this 8.30 prayer meeting here on Sundays primarily because if I'm late, I'm late to that, and I'm never late to the 9.30 by any, that way. I'm often late for John Luke's leading worship, and I come in, and the, there was like eight of them worshiping and praying by the time I rolled in today. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but that made me 20 minutes early for the 9.30 meeting. Do something like that. It, you can, it'll work. Well, let's keep going. First um, Peter 2, I wish I had time. That's a quote uh, from Exodus 19, 1 through 6, especially verses 5 and 6. Study that because that will make something very clear to you. Those verses, if you compare them, tell you this. Everything the Old Testament says, listen to this carefully, this is a radical idea in modern... This is the opposite of what dispensationalism teaches, which 95% of evangelical Christians believe some form of dispensationalism, which is a paradigm that emerged in the 1800s, which almost no one buys the whole paradigm anymore because it's so unscriptural that it's ridiculous. But almost all evangelicals still let it control what are the main issues of church and church life and so forth. There's very few people, a couple diehards like Charles Ryrie, who's 92 by now, at Dallas Theological Seminary, who would say that I'm, a, I'm still a pure dispensationalist. 99% of dispensationalists have modified it because you can't, it's not a very scriptural paradigm and it's hard to defend. 
yet it still controls most of the thinking about Scripture that goes on. And even if you don't know what dispensationalism is, if you speak English, you're being, it's influencing your reading of the Bible greatly. Also, if you speak any other European language like Spanish or French or, or Italian, it's influencing you more than you know. So it doesn't matter that you don't want to know big words if they're controlling you. And they are. So one of the things First Peter makes clear when it's quoting all those underlying parts in my, in my outline there. I'm still on Roman numeral one. <laughs> um, if I thought all the way through this outline, we'd get out of here by 7 o'clock. I once did speak, uh, of course, it was prearranged. I spoke to a group of uh, 70-some leaders, and I spoke for seven hours. <laughs> we did take a 10-minute break for refreshments in the middle. Um, <laughs> but that was a long time ago in a, in a land in a galaxy far away. But um, <laughs> space, the final frontier. <laughs> um, this verse makes it clear by quoting Exodus 19, 5 and 6, this very radical idea. Everything, everything, we all know what all means, everything, the sum, every single point that the Bible says about the people of God in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, has been transferred to the church in the New Testament. Everything. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession. We are to show forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to live corporately in such a way that people actually come to us and say, boy, the way you guys live works better. I need some help. The way I approach raising my kids isn't working very well. Hopefully they come young enough that you can, that it's not too late. So uh, that's all the review. <laughs> now, now today's stuff. Uh, I'm going to cover a couple of these things. What I want to do is, is, is basically take us through a series of things over the next couple weeks that are basically going to show us this. Almost all modern evangelicals look at the scriptures as if there is a super huge discontinuity between the two covenants. If you really think it through... It actually goes so far as to postulate the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. They wouldn't say that, but that's what they actually believe. The God of the Old Testament was this wrathful, mean, nasty guy who stoned people to death. And the God of the New Testament is grace, mercy, forgiveness all the time. I can just keep my drunkenness, my sexual immorality... My lack of uh, getting up on time for the Lord's Day, I can just keep doing this and there will never be any negative consequences because I just say, oh, sorry again, I killed another roommate. Oh, oh well, <laughs> you know, I, I'll try to do better, Lord. 
Oh, I yelled at my kid in an inappropriate way. I'll try to do better, Lord. That's what, we, that's what we've been taught. Like God, like forgiveness is cheap. And so we don't really have to seek God much for grace to, to become like Christ. That's, that's our forgiveness doctrine in a nutshell. And it goes so far as to, as to be in, uh, insinuating that the God of the Old Testament is actually a different guy. Deep down in their hearts, most evangelicals actually believe that, although they would never admit to that. And the Old Testament is full of many irrelevant stories and history, historical accounts and laws and so forth. So we don't read it. A very, very, very high percentage of evangelicals have read very little of the Old Testament. How many people before you came here would be honest enough to tell me that you went to a Bible-believing church and you had never read the Old Testament through two or three times? Right? And you didn't even think that was necessarily an important goal. But every New Testament writer quotes from or alludes to or takes accounts from the New Testament an average of around 15 times in each New Testament chapter. Therefore, every New Testament chapter is assuming when you read it that you know the Old Testament thoroughly to get the points out of it. And if you don't know the Old Testament thoroughly, you're, it's good to read the New Testament but you're missing the majority of what you're reading. Now, over the next few weeks, I'm going to look at a number of isms, a number of ways in which modern Christianity uh, doesn't see a continuity between the covenants and therefore gets both the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament in completely wrong. Which is why we sometimes have people who've been Christians two, three, four, five years, and they don't have the majority of their problems solved yet. But you know what? Here's what salvation means there's a God in heaven who is omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, he's incomprehensible, he's eternal, he's. Uh, has what's called a seity. That means he has no needs of you or, or me or anybody else. He's self-existing. He's not only all-knowing and all-wise and, and everywhere present. Uh, he's extremely personable. And he's both wrathful to the max and loving to the max. At the same time, because there's a doctrine called the simplicity of God, which means we can talk about all the attributes of God all we want as separate categories so we can help our puny little human thinking because we're so finite. But none of the attributes of God are, are not happening at all times. Every attribute of God is always on the surface of God all the time. And that being created us and our problems are a thing called sin, which in the Greek, harmartia, means to miss the target. 
So we are not on the center of what God has intended for us, which is actually a very good thing. Jeremiah 29, I know my plans for you and so forth. He came to John 10, 10, I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly. And because of this problem called sin, your relationship with him is screwed up. Your emotions are screwed up. You're addicted to various things. You have various fears. You have various social limitations in terms of lack of social skills. You don't know what you're supposed to do vocationally and work ethic and so forth. You're not very disciplined or industrious. And you're undereducated compared to what you were meant to be. That's the, called the good news, by the way. In other words, for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And he came to rescue you from all of that. And when he comes into your life, he comes in, the Greek word sozo the, 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 is the verb form, the noun form soteria. He comes in to deliver you or rescue you from all of that and to make you the person you were meant to be. And if you're rightly related to him for very long, you shouldn't be screwed up hardly at all. Is that the gospel you got saved to? Just ask Jesus to come into your heart. Where he, that's not even in the Bible, by the way. How do I see? I could mean the message is going to come to an end. <laughs> as soon as the water's done. <laughs> you heard about the preacher who... Uh, used to put a lifesaver in his mouth at the beginning of every message. And when the, the lifesaver was done, he, the message was over. And one time he accidentally popped a button in there. and He spoke for three or four hours. <laughs> I need more buttons, Lord. So we're going to talk about a bunch of things uh, that basically do this. If you understand what I'm going to talk about the next uh, few weeks... You're going to get the greatest Christmas present, although it'll probably take till mid-January to deliver it. I'm not like, Amazon's much better at delivery than me. Uh, <laughs> but if you get what I'm saying, you'll, I, I promise you this, you'll get your Old Testament back. And you'll understand the New Testament in a completely different way than you've ever understood it. Because it's about the New Testament is primarily about the destruction of Jerusalem. The whole New Testament is about that. God's covenant lawsuit against Israel and Judah. And God's taking the kingdom away from them and giving it to a nation producing the fruit of it. If you want to know why the liberal churches especially are, have been declining since the fundamentalist modernist controversy... For the last 150 years, the modernist churches have been going down in numbers. Guess what? More and more and more, except for various charismatic and Pentecostal versions, uh, most of the conservative churches are going down in numbers, especially in the West. Do you know why? Because Matthew... Part of God's covenant lawsuit is, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation that produces the fruit thereof. And the fruit thereof is an entire 
life-changing, family-changing, marriage-restoring, converting, uh, restore-your-whole-life message that has great, great, great cost, more than anything you've ever paid for, and it, 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 the cost is, is uh, appropriated by entering into the cost he's already paid. And as you exchange your life for his life, he came to give you a, a life that's be exceedingly abundantly above, above all that we ask or think. And if you're not making progress toward there, then you're if you're and if you're not grabbing someone who has, you know, we we have elders in this church. We also have a leadership team of people who are supposed are hopefully going to be elders or leaders in in over the course of time. Right? Those people can take you further. Now, I would encourage you to ask me or my wife or Anvesh or John Gray or their wives, who would be the best person to help me get there? But get with somebody who can take you there. And get with the, the, the most qualified person to take you there. The only reason I can't do that for every one of you is I'm too old and I have, don't have enough energy anymore. No, I, I, this, this size of group I could disciple 30, 40 years ago. And I could have probably given every person in this room two or three hours of time every week. I literally could work 80, 90 hour weeks. Now I work eight or nine hour weeks. <laughs> you know, so, no, I, but uh, listen, this, this Christian life, what I, you know, this, what I'm trying to even just say here is this is stupendous. It's magnificent. I don't, that's not even a word, is it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's beyond anything that, that words exist. It's exceedingly abundantly upon all you ask or think. Most of us have fears of, you know what? Most of us have an, an area of our life, like our marriage, our, some addiction we struggle with, uh, some uh, maybe lack of uh, studiousness where we're not very well educated and suffering. We have areas that we in our heart have said, uh, you know, we don't believe that they're going to change. You know what? That's just nonsense. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There, God came to change lives and to set captives free. And all you need to do is get in a radical enough church which, and get the right kind of help and apply yourself to a discipleship program. Don't, people sit there and go, well, I'm not going to call for help because they're busy. Let, you know what? Catherine can tell you if she's busy or not. Call me and ask for the appointment. And if I don't answer, call again and text again and be persistent about it. And I'll tell you, yes, I'll meet with you or I'd rather you worked with so-and-so. But we have lots of people. Daniel Williams He's good at helping people. You know, we have lots of people who are getting better and better at this. Right? And, uh, and don't let yourself... I, can, like, I, I know it's late, but I, I beg of you. 
Don't sit there and listen to me say all this radical stuff week after week and and don't jump in. Now, one of the things you're going to have to do if you're ever going to grow is you're going to have to become a reader. You cannot grow very much without becoming a reader. I had uh, my most exciting meeting of the week. I won't tell you who it was. It was with a a young person that... that, uh, we, we, you know, sat across the table from each other having dinner, and she told me that she read this book and that book and this book, and then I was like, thank you, Jesus, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it was amazing, like books that I, you know, that are 350 pages that, and this person's been like serious about seeking God for a few months. You know, uh, now, that's not all there is to growing. You won't grow without getting some personal help. Get someone older than you in the Lord that you've made it. And don't have an undefined relationship. Say, are you going to disciple me? You know, Anvesh is increasingly good at this. Josiah is getting better and better at this. We have people in this church that can do this. And don't let yourself not take advantage of that. Who's helping you grow? If you're staying in the same place, and, you know, write, make a list of the areas that you've set in your heart that I'm not going to conquer this. I'm just going to, you know, be fat. That's, you know, the one I struggle with. Like, you know what? I don't need to be fat. I could work at it. I'm praying about it. (laughs) You know, like, or I'm just going to be not very disciplined with my devotions, or I'm just going to have this uh, problem, this addiction, or this fear, or this, uh, you know, bad dreams at night, whatever it is. God, you know, God wants to help you. What's that?